Well, same passage, different sermon. Don't worry. Um, Miami Beach in the 1980s was the place to be. The rich and famous were flocking there to party. Uh, Drug lords were flocking there to supply those parties. And investors from all over the world were flocking there to build the buildings and the houses that would um, house those parties, so to speak. (laughs) Luxury shopping centers and hotels and condos were popping up everywhere along the coast. Everyone wanted to be a part of the action of Miami Beach in the 1980s. Um, One of the condos that was built in 1981 was the 12-story Champlain Towers South. And it was one of the most sought-after places to live on the coast. I have a picture of it for you so that you have an idea of what it looked like. It was the peak of luxury. I tried to find a a good picture of the back of it, but I couldn't um, on Google. I'll tell you why in a minute. (laughs) But they had a a heated pool right on the the coast. Um, Open floor plans with views of the ocean. You cannot beat that, right? That's amazing. Deep balconies, floor-to-ceiling glass windows were just some of the features that the building boasts. On top of that, like I said, it had a heated pool, a hot tub, sauna, gym, barbecue area, even valet parking, which, raise your hand if you live in a condo anywhere around Uptown, like South End, any, anyone, like nobody lives in a condo. Okay, are you with me right now? Can we try that again? Raise your hand if you live in a condo around here. Apartment? Apartment and condo is the same thing, guys. <laughs> semantics. It's semantics, okay? So we used to live, I'm like, holy cow, like nobody lives, I thought you all lived like right here. Um, we used to live in an apartment in Uptown, also known as a condo. Um, and uh, like parking there was a disaster. People were always getting in accidents and stuff. Valet parking would have changed everything. We'd probably still be there um, if we had it. Champlain Towers South had everything you could possibly want especially direct access to the beach. According to Zillow, you can buy a four-bedroom condo for a steal of just $3 million. It's nicknamed the Surfside Towers. It's awesome, peak of luxury. But there's a big problem. In spite of all of its features, in spite of all of its amenities, even in spite of its beachfront access, the tower had a bad foundation. In July of last year, a major section of this building collapsed and killed 98 people. I have a building of the back of it now, a picture of this building. Yeah, you can see it. There used to be a pool there. The beach is somewhere close by. All kinds of studies were done to figure out what in the world happened to the Surfside condos. Um, After it was all said and done, they realized that All kinds of shortcuts had been taken. Major mistakes had been made. For example, um, during construction, they skipped waterproofing in the areas where salt water could seep in. They used thin columns instead of large support beams at the base. They skimped on the heavy walls that keep buildings from toppling. And they didn't put enough concrete over the rebar. So structurally, this building was a disaster. But the reason I tell you this story right now, the reason I'm giving you this brief history, is the reason it's so tragic is because the Surfside Towers didn't just fall because they had a bad foundation. The Surfside Towers fell because when they realized that they had a bad foundation, they did nothing to change it. This is what was so shocking. The Surfside Towers fell last summer, July of 2021, 
They discovered the problems in 1996. But instead of fixing the shaky foundation, they chose to literally paper over the cracks. Instead of going after the source of the problems, they went after the symptoms instead. Look at how the Wall Street Journal reported on it all. Uh, I guess it was last year. Engineers say some issues would have been fixable had the property's condo board done more extensive repairs sooner. By 1996, the slab started showing cracks. Pieces of concrete had fallen off the garage ceiling. Unusual so soon after construction. Workers patched cracks, literally papered over the cracks, and waterproofed the pool deck, but eventually that failed too. The condo board failed to act. Roof work began weeks before the collapse, but repairs to the steel-reinforced concrete hadn't yet started. Guys, they were literally focused on the roof when they should have been fixing the foundation. And I tell that story because if this is not an analogy of the American church in 2022, I don't know what is. You see, the 1980s weren't just booming for Miami. The 1980s were booming for evangelicalism. Uh, 37-year-old Bill Hybels and 33-year-old Rick Warren were starting a movement and leading a movement that was unprecedented in church history. Uh, they were kind of like the Steve Jobs and, and the Bill Gates of the megachurch, if you don't know these names. Tens of thousands of people were flocking to their churches every single week. It looked like the church was the place where everyone wanted to be. The features were phenomenal. The amenities were unrivaled. The sermons were world-class. The programs were all-encompassing. The music was incredible. I mean, Hillsong had just written Shout to the Lord. Anybody know that song? I know I'm showing my age right now, but this was like the Mecca. Um, <laughs> Amy Grant had just released El Shaddai. Michael W. Smith was just putting out hit after hit after hit. There was a band called DC Talk that had just released their self-titled album. And, and this is like my childhood. So I'm telling this to you right now, and like I got so much nostalgia. You 20-somethings are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Imagine Bieber, but Christian. It was massive, okay? I guess Bieber's Christian now. I, I don't know. Um, Every single person in your family could show up to church and have every single one of their needs and desires and expectations met in one place, in one service. In fact, that's why they started calling them services, because it was like showing up to a service provider, and you'd get your, your tank filled up, and then you'd leave all filled up and great and good. It was amazing. It looked like Jesus and Jesus' people were finally going to be cool again. And the church was going to be a big part of the culture from that point on. That was evangelicalism in the 80s. Look at how Rick Warren described the movement in 1989. He said, there's a trend all across America moving away from the small neighborhood churches to larger regional type churches. It's the same phenomenon with the mall replacing the mom and pop stores on the corner. And people will drive past all kinds of little shopping centers to go to a major mall where there are lots of services and where they meet all their needs. The same is true in churches today. 
and that people drive past dozens of little churches to go to a larger church which offers more services and more special programs. In other words, more features and more amenities. This is good stuff. It's, a, it's an incredible movement. Bill Hybels put it this way. We are on the verge of making kingdom history, doing things a new way for a whole new generation. I'm the generation they were going after. So are most of you. Evangelicalism seemed to be thriving. The church seemed to be growing, or at least the megachurch, not the mom and pops. Christianity seemed to be having a positive impact on the culture. Jesus was everybody's homeboy. Every from, everybody from Madonna to Britney Spears to Justin Timberlake was thanking Jesus for every Grammy they won. It was amazing. You could be a Christian and be cool at the same time. That was my high school. The problem with this movement was that despite all the features and all the amenities and all the cool stuff on the surface, it was being built on a bad foundation. The church was not shaping the culture. The culture was shaping the church. Meaning, the ideas that were driving our society were all of a sudden becoming the bedrock of our churches. We adopted the philosophies of the world rather than contending for the faith. And so today, 40 years later, the cracks are starting to show. Now, let me just say up front, I am not against the megachurch, okay? Because I know that you're going to think that if you don't know me, you're going to think that. Um, I, I was sent here to plant this church by a megachurch that my dad started and still pastors. So this is not the little guy punching up at the big guy, okay? Don't hear that. Now that I've said that, and hopefully you believe me, let's get back to this. The cracks are starting to show. 2019, good news. 3,000 churches were planted across the United States of America in 2019. Great news. Don't clap. 4,500 shut their doors forever. So that's a negative 1,500 churches in 2019. It's not a good number. In North Carolina alone, I was with the executive director from North Carolina Baptist this past week. He said every single year, 200 Baptist churches close their doors in North Carolina. So we have to plant 200 churches every year just to stay even. That's not great. When I moved to Charlotte, I was told 90% of the Baptist churches in this city are either in the process of dying or are already dead selling their property. There's a great restaurant in Plaza Midwood. You know what I'm talking about. It used to be a church. The percentage of Americans who claim to be Christian has dropped 15 points in the last 15 years. So the cracks are starting to show. I could go on and on with these stats, but I know I don't have to because it's obvious to everyone, right? I don't even have to tell you these numbers. You see it. Despite all of the optimism, despite all of the momentum and all the leaders and all of this new thing for a new generation, things are not going well for the church in America. So what I want to do with you today is I want to get down into the crawl space of the church and I want to do an inspection on our structural integrity, so to speak. Um, I want us to put on our hard hats. I want us to zip up those cool body suits. I want us to turn on our flashlights. I want us to go underneath the surface. And I want us to identify the problems 
What is broken in our theological and philosophical foundations? Megachurches are cool and they're doing a lot of good stuff, but Christianity's going down. So what are we doing that's not right so that we can fix the problems and not continue in this trajectory? You see, I don't think the church in America is the Surfside Tower in 2021. I actually have a lot more faith than that. I think we're the Surfside Tower in 1996. I think that there's still some time for us because honestly, guys, I look at you and I see people who love Jesus and not just you, other churches in this city and other churches around the, around the country, people who love Jesus. I see miracles still being done. I still see people getting saved and I still see healthy churches being planted. I don't think we've crumbled yet, but I do think it's a pivotal moment in our history. And so last week I preached this text for you, Life Church, individually about being devoted to each other. And I encourage you, man, we're on the right track. And, and I, I love being your pastor. Today, I want to take a, a broader view of the church in America as a whole because we've all been influenced by it. And as Life Church, we're four years old, we're trying to do things differently. And so this is going to be a broad sermon. This is going to be a weird sermon. I think the, the intro is going to be almost the entire sermon. So bear with me. We'll get to Acts 2 in a minute. What I want to do is I want to identify the cracks in our theological and philosophical foundations. And then after we identify these cracks, I want to go to Acts 2 and, and, and find a solution, okay? And, and see what we need to do to, to change this trajectory. All right. That's what we're going to go after. Check in. You, are you with me? Despite the condo thing. You, you good? Okay. All right. Okay, I think the biggest question that we should be asking here is, why is it that we have more world-class preachers and globally recognized teachers and Grammy-winning worship leaders and best-selling authors and state-of-the-art facilities and highly sophisticated systems and cutting-edge strategies and all-encompassing programs? Why do we have all of that, and yet at the same time, the church is more impotent and ineffective than ever before? That's the question. So let's get under the crawl space and let's figure out what's broken so that we can repair it. Now, Sinclair Ferguson, he, he's a Scottish uh, pastor, theologian. If, if you're from more of that reformed elk, the Presbyterian elk, you know who he is. He has written and spoken extensively on this. And so for this first part, I'm, I'm actually going to be leaning pretty heavily on a lot of his writings. And if you'd like to know more about him, I, I'm happy to share some of this stuff with you. But let me summarize his findings in like the simplest way possible because he gets super, super academic. Okay, hang with me for a minute. First, first, we are obsessed with cultural relevance, which is the result of liberal subjectivism. I think that's a point. I think I got it. There it is. Awesome. Great. We are obsessed with cultural relevance, which is the result of liberal subjectivism. Okay, so basically, what was happening in the 20th century was that modernists and fundamentalists were at war. Um, Darwinian evolutionists and uh, theistic creationists were going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, so to speak, and it felt like the soul of the nation was up for grabs. This is 20th century. Um, it really sort of came to a head in 1925, with this famous trial known as the State of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes. It was nicknamed the Monkey Trial. You, you familiar with the Monkey Trial? 
No, okay, all right, good. So Scopes, let me tell you about the monkey trial. Scopes was a high school teacher, and he had been accused of teaching Darwinian evolution in his high school, which was illegal at the time. Um, come to find out, he, he wasn't even sure if he had been teaching it, but he wanted to go to trial because they wanted it to be like a massive publicity stunt nationally so that the fundamentalists and the, the evolutionists could fight against each other in this courtroom. So they go to trial, and it is a massive deal. Culturally, it is the biggest thing going on in the country for as long as the trial is taking place. It is Heard versus Depp times 10. That's what this monkey trial is all about, and I'm not exaggerating. 200 journalists, 1925, 200 journalists from all over the country and even the UK flocked to this little town to report on the monkey trial. Now, the thing about this trial is that Scopes loses. He gets found guilty, and so he loses in the courtroom, but the problem was that as a result of the trial, he actually won, and Darwinian evolution won in the court of public opinion. And it had a lot to do with the 200 journalists that were reporting on it. In fact, the New York Times, and I can't remember the, the journalist's name who was writing for the New York Times, but you can look it up. He is credited with popularizing Darwinian evolution because of his reporting on this trial. He, he called the prosecutor, who was a fundamentalist, names like buffoon, and he called his speeches theological bilge, which I didn't know what that word meant, so I had to look up the word bilge. Bilge just means nonsense. There you go. Um, and then he described the defense, which was defending Darwinian evolution, as eloquent and magnificent. 200 journalists from all over the country sent out a collective 165,000 words a day in print during the whole trial. And almost all of them made creationists look like complete idiots and evolutionists look like total geniuses. Basically, as a result of this trial, if you took the Bible literally, if you believed in things like Noah and the ark and Moses and the Red Sea and Jonah and the whale, you were living in a fantasy world. Like, you were a buffoon. You were insane. And so in the courtroom of public opinion, the fundamentalists lost, the evolutionists won. Now, fast forward a few decades, and you've got a new way of interpreting Scripture called liberal subjectivism, which was basically an attempt to make the Bible relevant again. Make the Bible great again is what liberal subjectivism was. You don't have to take everything literally. Um, God didn't really create the world in seven days. Noah didn't really board an ark with all the animals. Moses didn't actually part the Red Sea. Jonah really didn't get swallowed up by a fish. They're all analogies. They're, they're metaphors. They're fables. And you can, you can take the principle and you don't have to take it literally. The Bible is, is okay. It's not insanity. We had lost our cultural relevance and we needed to get it back again. That's what liberal subjectivism was trying to do. The irony is that in their attempt to quote unquote save evangelicalism, which is what they were trying to do, they created a fissure in the foundation that would lead us to where we are today. 
I don't have time to get into the full history here, but the impact of this and this movement, the impact that this has had on churches is almost impossible to understate. Um, We are so obsessed with what people think of us that we have built our churches and shaped our gatherings around their opinions. This is how the megachurch movement was actually born. What will attract the people? What will appeal to the masses? What will make us relevant in culture? Because we don't want to be buffoons anymore. What will make us acceptable again? What, What celebrities can we get to endorse us? Anybody ever felt like that? That's liberal subjectivism. We've just been colonized like that. Like, is Kanye a Christian now? Awesome. Get him on stage. Like, let him, let him preach a sermon. We, don't, we, we have no idea if it's valid. Let's not, like, disciple him a little bit. Let's coach him a little bit. Like, just throw the kid on stage because he's famous. That'll make us cool. Is Bieber a Christian now? Get him up on stage. Cut a worship album. We just want to be accepted again. Is Chris Proud a Christian? Sign him up for God's Not Dead 5. You know what I mean? It's just like, let's make Christianity cool again. I think the, the biggest impact that liberal subjectivism had on the megachurch was the way it shifted our gatherings from being centered on Christ to being centered on the seeker. And this is a distinctive of our church, which is, you know, if you're in church membership, sorry. I know you just got this last week. Rather than emphasizing truth, we started emphasizing felt needs. Rather than stressing the authority of God's word, we started stressing the authority of our own experiences. Rather than focusing on our need for salvation, we started focusing on our need for breakthrough. Personally, reach your ceiling, and then break through that glass. On and on it went. I'll never forget uh, visiting a church in Michigan back when I was in college. Famous church, famous pastor. And uh, I was traveling in Michigan with a soccer team, and, and, and we knew that this guy was there, and a bunch of us had watched him on YouTube. YouTube was like just getting off the ground, and we're like, let's go see this guy's church. And, and so we went to his church. It was really cool. And Coldplay had just released X and Y. And um, X and Y is not their greatest album of all time, but it has a song on it called Fix You. And Fix You is their greatest song of all time. And I will never forget walking into this church and they're blasting Fix You um, over, like, all throughout the sanctuary. And I was like, this is like, kind of interesting. I would have never expected, I'm about, I'm about to worship Jesus, but I'm jamming out to Coldplay. Like, I was like, kind of disoriented and it was a little weird and I was surprised. I, I loved Coldplay. I loved the song. I just wasn't expecting it. I found out later, um, as I was going through my studies and then seminary and studying the church and the movements that were going on, was that there was a strategy that churches were using all over the country to play secular music to draw in seekers. Where did that come from? All oh, that came from liberal subjectivism. We need to be relevant again. I, I love it, though. Just think about it. It's like bait them with cool secular music, and then as soon as they're sitting down, switch it to Jesus and just start dropping bombs. Everybody loves a good bait and switch, right? Listen, the problem with all of this is that as our obsession with the approval of people grew, 
our concern with the approval of God shrank. As we began to ask what would appeal to the masses, we stopped asking what was expected of God. As we shifted our worship gatherings to attract more and more seekers, we forgot the fact that the king of the universe was already seeking our worship. As Sinclair Ferguson put it, there is a seeker in our gatherings, and it's the king of the universe, and he loves the praises of his people, and he delights in the worship of his people, and if he goes ignored, we've missed the whole point. Now listen, we actually, we, we say we, we love having seekers here, and we know that many of you are seekers and you're skeptics, but we do not shape our gathering around you. We want to show you a transcendent king and a transcendent God and show you his beauty and his glory and his perfection and his goodness so that if you see him, you'll realize that he's worthy. And so we shape it around him, and as we worship him in spirit and in truth and as we worship him with our whole hearts, then he transforms us. And he satisfies us and he gives us joy and we want you to have that joy too. So there's a big difference between us being aware that there are seekers here and loving you and welcoming you and saying you can come any day you want. We want to show you Jesus. And there's a big difference between that and saying, okay, what are we going to do to get, get them in here? How can we make them feel welcomed? Well, guys, it's a desire to be relevant. That's the first thing that's broken in our foundation. We're obsessed with cultural relevance. It's the result of liberal subjectivism. Second, we're dominated by individualism, which is the result of postmodernism. Postmodernism basically says what's true for me is true for me, what's true for you is true for you, and that's great. Let's just live our lives. And Try not to offend each other as best as possible. In, in, in postmodernism, the individual is God, and our opinions are gospel. You get to define truth for yourself. And while I think that most Christians get the fact that postmodernism doesn't work with Christ, because Christ said, I'm the truth, <laughs> right? He didn't say, I've got a truth, and you've got a truth. He said, I am the truth. And then the rest of the New Testament is just pointing back to him. Hey, here's the truth. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. So we, we get the fact that postmodernism doesn't fly with Jesus because he's the truth and all things that are true are actually pointing us to him and that's good and it's beautiful. But here's the thing. While most of us get that, our modern churches are actually built on the individualism that flows out of postmodernity. Let me explain that to you. We might not say things like what's true for you is true for, for you and what's true for me is true for me, but we say all kinds of other things like this music does it for me. We say things like this preaching connects with me. We say things like this is the kind of worship service I'm looking for. This is the kind of church that checks all of my boxes. Um, I'm just not finding what I'm looking for here, so I'm going to shop around for a little while till I find the product, I mean church, that meets all of my expectations. That's radical individualism. In that scenario, you and I are God. And our opinion is gospel. And it's the result of postmodernity. 
We're the consumers. The church is the service provider. If we're not happy with it, we can go somewhere else. We are not bound to anyone but our own happiness. If we're not happy, we can go somewhere else. In our first couple of months as a church, I tell this story. It's so funny to me. I know this is a really heavy sermon. Goodness gracious. I feel the weight. Um, in the first couple of months as a church, I had a conversation with a guy, and, uh, and he, he, was, he had told me, hey, we're going to leave your church for a lot of reasons. And I was like, well, let's meet. And I just appreciated him reaching out. That was kind of him. And so we had a good conversation. And, um, and, and it was so fascinating to me. The straw that broke the camel's back for this guy was the Sunday that we sang an old hymn called It Is Well. And he told me, he's like, Ben, I can't be in a church that sings hymns. Like, I can't do it. Um, I need to be in, a, in an edgy church. I need to be in a hip-hop church. I need to be in a church that's, like, you know, younger and that kind of stuff. I can't be in a church that sings old hymns. And I was like, oh, okay. Thank you for telling me. <laughs> um, this is the second problem with our foundations as a church. It's not just, and I, and I want you to hear this because I'm about to own some of this. It's not just that Christians think like this. It's that Christian leaders have conditioned Christians to think like this. Pastors, authors, the people organizing all of it. I, I tell the story every year in church membership about a pastor who was launch, launching a church in North Carolina. And I, I was going through uh, church planting training with a bunch of other uh, potential church planters. And this guy was one of the teachers and one of the gurus and um, he got up there and he was telling us about his journey and starting a church. And um, he told us that his tagline for his church was, this ain't your grandma's church. And he was so pumped about it because um, it was going to be a rock and roll church. And it's going to be like super cool and super edgy and the youngsters are going to love it. And it's going to be amazing. And, um, and, and I remember sitting there thinking, and I didn't say anything to him, because um, it really wasn't my place. I was, I was the pupil, you know, trying to soak it all in and figure out what not to do in our church, because um, I love grandmas. Um, I hope to be a grandpa someday. It'd be great to have a church to go to. I didn't get kicked out, you know, because of ageism. It'd be awesome. Um, but uh, I just remember thinking, like, wow, like, that's a church leader like forming a church that has been so influenced by individualism and post-modernity that he is now saying, like, we're going to cater to your preferences because you're the consumer and we're the product and we need to make you happy. Oh, man. You see why our church is broken? We built our churches on radical individualism that flows out of post-modernity. That's the pr second problem that needs to be fixed. Third, we are enamored with glory, which is the return of medievalism. The medieval church had a theology of glory, not a theology of the cross. i got to be really concise here. I'm almost done with the intro. Hang in. Um, that meant that it was obsessed with size. It was obsessed with beauty and magnificence and all of its buildings. Aesthetics were everything. Cathedrals were built. They were immaculate. 
And, and I, I have no problem with beauty. I actually love beauty. I, I love our building and the big windows. And man, if God ever gives us millions of dollars, we're going to build a better building. It's going to be amazing. I dream about it all the time. Okay. Um, the problem wasn't that they, that they liked size, that they liked big buildings. The problem was the mindset behind it. And the mindset was this theology of glory. And so the problem um, was that in the medieval church, all of the emphasis was on the visual and none of it was on the verbal, on the word of God. It was all about the, the, the stained glass window and the altar and the performance, not the participation. It was all about the drama of the service, not the doctrine behind the service. So sermons were preached in different languages. Nobody could understand them. The songs were sung by an elevated choir, and everyone just sat and watched them. Um, the liturgy was performed, and everyone just sat and watched the spectacle. And it was, it was beautiful. It was incredible. But nobody had any idea what was going on at all. During the Reformation, one of the biggest questions that Zwingli and his friends were, were debating was, should the congregation sing with the choir, or should they just sit and watch? For the medieval church, size meant power, glory meant influence, and that's what they wanted more than anything, power and influence. It was built on a theology of glory, not a theology of the cross. Can you see how this has made its way into the American church? Have we been influenced by this idea? We automatically equate size with success. In fact, you know, you listen to all of the podcasts related to Mars Hill, which was this church in Seattle, and it was everyone could see the problems, and everyone could see the spiritual abuse, and everyone could see the sin, but it was growing. And so that meant it must have been good, because size means good. It means blessing. We have, uh, we have these things called pastor's conferences. They're very strange things to attend. Very strange. Um, in, uh, when I, in 2015, before I planted a church, I went to one of them. Very broad. It was just all of evangelicalism. It was a melting pot. So you had all of the Methodists and the Assemblies of God and the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the non-denoms and all of it. And, and it was all together. And there was a track for churches that were like 200 people. And there was a track for churches that had 1,000 people. And there was a track for churches that had 5,000 people. And there was a track for churches that had more than 10,000 people. And you had better believe that there was a difference in the way that those men were treated based on the size of their church. Because size equals success, and success equals influence. And that's what we want more than anything. Power and influence. So as Ferguson puts it, we long for a mega church, we couldn't care less about a holy church. We equate size with success and influence with blessing, but we don't even realize how messed up we've become. Guys, generally speaking, and I know I'm speaking in a lot of generalities right now, and that's intentional. I'm talking about the Church of America, okay? Uh, broadly speaking, generally speaking, we long to be spectators. Lost in a crowd, watching the performance, caught up in the beauty, connected to success, and responsible for nothing. That's great. 
This is what online church is all about. I'm about to get on a little soapbox here, but I'm going to get into the scriptures here in a minute. I know I'm offending so many people right now. Um, Online church is not progress. Online church is a regression back to the Middle Ages. Watch the professionals. Enjoy the performance. Nothing will be required of you at all. That's not progress. In fact, the reason that we intentionally don't mind having a really bad Facebook stream and we don't do our music and we can't figure out like why our HDMI cord never works It's because we're not trying to go back to the Middle Ages. We actually believe this is progress. People in a room owning, owning each other, possessing a bond of brother and sister, serving one another, encouraging one another, building one another up, bearing one another's burdens. The one another's, how many of them are there in the New Testament? Was it like 59? Yeah, Caleb? 59 one another's cannot happen while you're looking at a screen. I was at a dinner last year with a bunch of pastors at one of the most important and influential churches in America, and I have good friends at this church. And I love them. Six or seven years ago, they were one of the trailblazers in the online church movement. And um, their leaders were talking to us at, at this dinner about how they had told their people for six years, you don't have to be in the building to be a part. And then COVID happened. And, and all of us, like little churches that don't do online stuff, we're scrambling. Like we're trying to figure out how do we, op- how do we turn a video camera on, you know? <laughs> and how do you get the lighting and the microphones to work and all that? We're scrambling. This church was not scrambling. This church was ready to go, and it was incredible. We're at this dinner last year, and they were talking about how during COVID, their views went up, their downloads went up, their giving went up. It was phenomenal. But when they opened back up after having to be closed for a little while, over 30% of their people never came back. One of the most important churches in the country. And they said, and, and I quote, Because I wrote it down. We told people for six years that they didn't have to be in the room to be a part. And now we're trying to figure out how to get them back in the room. It's a problem. It's foundational. We look and we act and we think more like the medieval church than a biblical church. Something needs to change. I'm not even going to get into politics, but man, that is just like the easiest softball, you know, power influence, glory. The theology of glory is what drives us to long for political power. I'll just leave it there. Okay, so those are the problems. Now let's go to Acts chapter 2. Hands down, the longest intro in the history of my short career as a preacher. Those are the problems. We're obsessed with our own relevance We're obsessed with our own preferences, and we're obsessed with our own glory. In other words, because of liberal subjectivism and postmodern individualism and medieval glory hunger, 
because they have all made their way into the foundation of our church, we have become almost completely obsessed with ourselves. Okay, that's the problem. What's the cure? Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 43. I'm just going to walk you through some stuff, okay? Verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Stop there. That word awe could be translated fear. It's basically the sense you get when you're in the presence of something that is equally dangerous and glorious. All at once, it's, it's the sense of like, holy cow, I can't believe I'm standing in this beauty and also this beauty might kill me. That's what awe is. It's terrifying and exquisite. It's dreadful and it's delightful. It's like how the sailor sees the ocean. Oh, they live for the ocean. And at the same time, they dread the ocean. Look at how one songwriter put it. 10,000 men sleep down with Davy Jones. With stolen treasure they tithe. The open water chills me to my bones. But it's the only place I feel alive. The ocean floor begins to disappear. I sense that terrible depth. The open water is my only fear, but I'll sail as long as I still have breath. That's what awe looks like. It's fear and it's wonder, dread and delight. And that was the foundation of the early church. Awe of God, not obsession with ourselves. Then my family and I went to Carowinds yesterday. It's fall. It's, it's pumpkin time. We got a little pumpkin for each of the kids. And we, we went to ride some rides. The lines were crazy, though. So we only got to ride a couple. But we got there, and, and nobody was riding. Nicholas, what was the first one we rode? Afterburn. Nobody knows about Afterburn. Pro tip. If you go to Carowinds, nobody's on Afterburn, okay? So we went and we rode Afterburn. And it's one of those where you, like, dangle, you know? And, uh, and you're strapped in. And um, it's intense, and you flip over, and you twist, and you're parallel to the ground 100 feet in the air all so many times. I love roller coasters, but the older I get, the less I can do them. I don't know what happens with this whole aging process, but my body's messed up now. I can't do them. So I did it twice with Nicholas, and I was done for the day. Um, the thing about roller coasters is they are, for me, one of the greatest thrills that that we can participate in. It's this sense of like, I could die, I'm flying at a crazy speed, and this is so fun, and we're screaming, and we're laughing, and all this kind of stuff. It is so much delight. But the thing about roller coasters is that, is that you only get the delight if you follow the rules. And so you show up, and there's lots of rules with the roller coaster. You gotta be a certain height to get on it. And then they tell you, if you want to hold on to your sunglasses and your hat, you need to take them off. You need to put them in the bin. And also, you need to lower that thing. You need to lower that protective harness so it covers your shoulders. And then you need to buckle it with a seatbelt. That's a rule. you got to follow it if you want to have the delight of the roller coaster. Here's the thing about roller coasters. You do not get the delight if you don't follow the rules. You get death. <laughs> you know, like... If you decide, you know what, I'm not a rule follower, I'm an eight. 
I just want to do my own thing. I'm really buying into this whole, like, I'm the master of my own destiny. I can do whatever I want to do. I don't follow people's rules. I make my own rules. I'm sitting in this roller coaster, and I'm not lowering that thing. You're a dead man, okay? It doesn't work. You're going to wish you followed them when you're 100 feet in the air, parallel to the ground. Now, imagine if I applied the same thing to God. Imagine the church applying the same principle to worship. How do we approach God in worship? First, we approach him as the ultimate delight. And when we worship him truly, our hearts will be consumed with awe and with joy and with pleasure because of what we've just experienced in him. But he has laid out rules for us with how we're supposed to worship him. Did you know that? Our members are learning about this. It's a tough pill to swallow. He has given us rules for how to engage him in worship. He has said that the worship of his people should start with a sense of awe, respect, like the sea. If we don't approach him in the way that he desires with clean hands and a pure heart in spirit and in truth as supremely holy and worthy, he is not going to receive it. He is enthroned on the praises of his people, but only when we follow his rules. If you come in pumped about the worship experience at the expense of the God you're here to worship, you have not found him. If you have showed up with sin in your heart that is unconfessed, if you have showed up presuming that he's just good with you because you're a good person and you feel some sense of emotion, it is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts sin, causes us to confess that sin, leads us to repent of that sin and turn from that sin. So if you're feeling something good, but you haven't confessed your sin, you're just all up in the hype. You are not experiencing God. He's laid out the rules. Psalm 24, who can ascend the holy hill? You know this psalm? Who can ascend, who can stand in the presence of the living God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not lifted his soul up to idols, including the idol of yourself. If you come in saying, I had better get my needs met, you are worshiping you. If you come in saying, the band had better be on and Ben had better bring it, you are looking for you. And you're missing God. Those are the rules. God is not more present when 5,000 people gather than when five gather. If the 5,000 aren't following his rules, he is not there. He doesn't care about our size. Listen, he cares about our sanctity. He cares that his people are holy even as he is holy. 
So the first thing we need to see about this first church is that it was built on a foundation of all. All of God eradicates obsession with self. Get this, guys. The reason they were so relevant in those early days, I want you to pay attention to this. You're not going to believe this. The reason that they were so relevant in those early days was because they were totally disinterested in their own relevance. They, at the same time, were totally enamored by the beauty and the glory of Christ. They weren't successful because they catered to the seeker. They were successful because they had encountered the true and living God and they worshiped him in spirit and in truth and his rightful place. And as they submitted to his good rules, the seekers were added day after day after day. Guys, our worship services should be centered to the true north. And if you can spot personalities in our gatherings, we've missed it. That means people are seeing us and our personalities and not the God that we're here to worship. The irony of the American church is that the more we cater to people, the more we lose people. The beauty of the biblical church is that the more they submitted to Jesus, the more he added to their numbers. Do you believe that? I hope so. It's true. So that's the first thing we need to fix. Let's keep going. Verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You notice that that didn't give them a big ego that caused them to dread, caused them to fear, to respect. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. All right, stop here for a minute. If one of the foundations of the American church is radical individualism, one of the foundations of the biblical church was radical commonality, radical community. They had all things in common. Now, what Luke is not saying here is that these early Christians agreed on everything, because that's what it sounds like, and that's a little confusing, because that that means we should be looking for uniformity. That means we should agree on every political decision. It means we should agree on every musical decision. It means we should agree on every preference about dress and style and how you should raise your kids. Should you public school, homeschool, Christian school? That's uniformity. That's not what he's saying here. He's not talking about uniformity. He's talking about unity. Now, I would love to come to a church where everyone was just like me. That would be amazing. Like, no conflict whatsoever. We could all just sit around a fire and we could, you know, Whatever you do around a fire, I know what I do. It's, it's a good time. You could do that, and, and, and then you could, you could bash everyone who was different than you. That would be so fun. Good time. Okay, now listen. Um, <laughs> uh, nobody, nobody, you will never find a church like that. There's no such thing as uniformity. And so when Luke says that they had all things in common, he's talking about all the things that they shared in Christ. This is so important. What he's saying here is they had so much in common because of Christ that all of their differences paled in comparison so that they could say, we have all things in common. 
For example, they shared in the body of Christ. They shared in the family of Christ, in the, in the, in the temple of Christ. They shared the spirit of Christ. They shared in the gospel of Christ. They shared in the life of Christ. They shared in the sufferings of Christ. They even shared in the glory of Christ as well. In fact, John 17 tells us that their glory was their unity. The glory that God gave the Son in his oneness with the Father was the glory that the Son was giving to his people and it would be revealed through our oneness. So we don't get the glory of Jesus until we start living as one. And they shared that. The biblical church was built on the foundation of what they shared in Christ, not how they felt as consumers. I'm preaching to myself too, guys. Did you know that in this first century, in this early church, this first church, there was no such thing as a grandma's church and a millennial's church? <laughs> There was no such thing as shopping around for a service that met all their needs. For a preacher who really engaged them or a band that really moved them. There was no such thing as hunting down a place of worship so that they could find the Spirit of God. Every single one of them had the Spirit of God inside of them. They were filled with Him. So the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, You have one body. You have one spirit, you have one Lord, you have one faith, you have one baptism, you have one God and Father of all. Everything else is secondary. And you know how I know everything else is secondary? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eagerly, earnestly, zealously, passionately maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Everything you have in Christ is enough so that you can say we have all things in common. And when we come to worship, we celebrate those things that we share, and we don't even, we don't even worry about the secondary things. Guys, let me tell you something crazy. This, all of the debate about secondary stuff is, is almost entirely a Western Christendom phenomenon. It is the result of peacetime. It is the result of not being persecuted as the people of God. We have gotten distracted and obsessed with the minutia of theology, trying to figure out <laughs> all kinds of obscure, crazy stuff that we'll never be able to figure out this side of heaven. And then we argue about it, and we create denominations about it, and we separate over it. We build straw men out of the people of God and beat each other up incessantly. Guys, if there was one word that I could use to describe the church in America, it would not be commonality, it would be tribalism. <sighs> the exact opposite of what Christ prayed for the night of his crucifixion. Guys, there's tribalism all over our culture right now. Instead of the church being the place where we contend for the faith by demonstrating unity and love, we just let the culture come in and colonize us. You know how to get rid of radical individualism and maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Emphasize what we have in common, what we have in Christ.
That's what we're trying to do as a church. It's so messy. It is so messy. It would be so much easier just to be like, here's our view of every secondary thing under the sun, and if you don't believe it, get out. It's so hard. And that's why every single epistle in the New Testament was constantly urging us above all else with passion, with zeal, with earnestness, pursue unity. So we're trying. Conviction on the primary things, namely the things related to Christ and his word, and then charity and humility and grace and gentleness and kindness on the secondary things, which is literally everything else. Can we be that church? If we want to fix what's broken in our foundation, if we want to repair the cracks that have been caused by individualism, we need to focus on what we share in Christ. Let's keep reading verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So while the American church is built on a foundation of consumerism, the biblical church was built on a foundation of care and concern for the poor. This goes back to the principle of awe, by the way. Because when God laid out the rules for worship, he told them that they could worship him with the best instruments and the best arrangements and the best sacrifices and the best theology. But if they didn't care for the poor among them, he wouldn't accept it. Amos 5. Away with your noisy hymns of praise, even if they're old school, even if it's it is well. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. He's told us what he wants. These early Christians knew those passages. They knew that God was zealously concerned about the poor and about holy living. And so they didn't have to be reminded of the fact that if they were going to be his people, they were going to need to be zealously concerned for the poor as well. So they started selling their possessions and giving to anyone who had a need. That is not a theology of glory. Listen, that is the theology of glory. Of the cross. Self-giving. Self-sacrificing. Self-forgetting. Love. They weren't trying to get power. They weren't trying to get influence. And they weren't trying to get wealth for themselves. They were giving up what they had so that the people around them could be blessed. That is the theology of Jesus. That is what it means to live a cruciform life. We follow in the footsteps of the cross. Dying to ourselves so that others might live. Guys, could you imagine what our country would look like? Just imagine with me for a second what our country would look like if a Republican won. Oh, wait. wait was that my sermon? Could you imagine what our country... Everyone just woke up. <laughs> Could you imagine what our country would look like if the people of God threw away the theology of glory and put on the theology of the cross? Amen. <laughs> Guys, it would look like the kingdom of heaven. 
it would look like his will being done on earth and his kingdom coming. And just as the angels are obeying right now, and life is just springing up in the throne room of God, that's what it would look like. The biblical church was built on a foundation that believed that people were more valuable than possessions, more important than preferences, and more significant than power. And this is the paradox of the church. It's only when we stop seeking power and stop trying to get our own glory and start following in the footsteps of Christ that his power starts being revealed through us and his glory is received by us. All right, let's keep reading. We're almost done, I promise. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Again, this is the complete opposite of radical individualism. They're opening up their homes. They're sharing meals. They're praising the Lord. They're preaching the gospel. They're studying the word in community. And there's this sense that everyone had a part to play in it. Isn't that cool? In fact, some historians have suggested, and I can't remember where I saw this, but um, that as they would sit around the table, someone would share a stand and share a song. <laughs> and they would take turns standing up and sharing a song. Isn't that crazy? Like there was no Kelly Perez. I mean, Kelly, I'm thank God for Kelly and Katie and our singers and Dan and everybody. But like, could you imagine being around the table and you're like, all right, it's your turn. Stand up and sing us a song. <laughs> that, make, that makes me anxious and I, I don't have a bad voice. Everyone had a part to play. It wasn't just a few professionals handing out the bread and wine. It was not done in a language that no one could understand. It was all of them together, breaking bread together, worshiping together. No stages, no pulpits, no altars, no cathedrals. Just a bunch of people who loved Jesus sitting around a table, sharing a meal, singing, and celebrating the cross together. Now, we do have pulpits and we do have stages. I get that. But we also do this whole other thing during the week, which is that. And we're trying to do that well. And it's messy and it's hard because we're Americans and we're not used to it. And we're just trying to figure it out. But I encourage you to join one of those table communities. All right, last thing. Verse 47. Day by day, God was adding to their number those who were being saved. Jews who thought the gospel was heresy. Greeks who thought the gospel was folly. Day by day, added to the number. Pagans and Pharisees alike turning to the risen Christ. And get this, it wasn't because Christians were softening their message. It wasn't because they were leaving some of the miracles out that couldn't be explained by philosophy or reason. Um, it wasn't because they were coating the gospel with sugar to make it more desirable. It was because people were so convinced it was true and so consumed by their love of God and love of each other and so transformed by the Holy Spirit that they shared it with boldness and earnestness and passion. It's not that they were like trying to make it cool again. It wasn't cool. In fact, if you believed, you'd be thrown in the Colosseum. They were filled with awe, which meant they had been set free from the fear of man, and they had been set free from the fear of death. And, and for us, we should be set free from the fear of any type of persecution or ridicule or shame. Listen, guys, if we want to repair 
the cracks in our broken foundation, all we have to do is go back to Acts chapter 2 and just hang out there. I, 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 I thought about preaching this, this next week, but I'll, I'll give you a pass because I could preach another one on this. Like We could just keep stay in Acts 2 for the rest of the year. Acts 2 is where we see a church enamored with Christ. Acts 2 is where we see a church in awe of God and consumed by the Spirit and in love with the Word and concern for each other and totally disinterested in themselves. If we want to change the trajectory of the church in America, we need to be a church like that. And we need to plant more churches like that. And so that's my prayer for us, that we would be and do just that, so that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done in Life Church and in Charlotte and in the United States of America as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Respond in prayer. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. If there's a sin you need to confess, would you confess it now? If there's a promise you need to believe, believe it now. If there's an action you need to take, take it now. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you and you respond to the Holy Spirit where you are and then we'll go to the table and celebrate the cross together. Bow your head and pray.